The following is a presentation of the Six Arrows Radio Network. Welcome to the Modern Christian Men Podcast with your host, Kale Nelson. Thanks for stopping by for another episode of the Modern Christian Men Podcast. I am Kale Nelson. Your host here for the program, celebrating this week not only the birth of these United States, but also the birth of my eldest son, who is turning 15 this week. I, I don't know if I'm more excited or anxious or, or what. When I don't even know how to describe that, but you know, that's a whole other program. Uh, my sons and daughters will get to one of these days as, as we do this thing, Modern Christian Men Together. I really appreciate you listening. It's a lot of fun. So awesome to get your feedback from the programs that we release across the board here. Topics ranging from front to back, left to right, and really hope that you're enjoying these. Thank you again as well for sharing them on your social media platforms. You may have noticed that uh, the Kel doesn't really have a huge social media um, footprint. Matter of fact, past a Twitter feed, there's nothing there. So if you feel so inclined, please feel free to share this on your socials and get some more guys tuned in to what we're chatting about here on the Modern Christian Men Show. This episode, Chris Donovan is back with us. I'm telling you, one of the most awesome individuals I've yet to be able to shake their hand, but I'm looking forward to that time as well as this time together with Chris as we talk about bringing America back to its roots Chris, it's such an honor and pleasure to have you here again. I'm really excited about uh, the topic and looking forward to what you've got to share with us. Well, I'm looking forward to this. I think, uh, you know, I'm actually headed up to Indianapolis on uh, the end of July when I come back from Ireland. uh, And I'm speaking in a church there. And they asked me what topic I want to speak on. And I said, I want to speak on one nation under God again. Wow. Uh, I said, returning to review so we can bring revival to the land. <laughs> so, that's, and that's where you're going now. That's that's where you you're definitively called into this. Uh, uh, this I, movement, I think, you think? To, into some way, I just uh, you know, America is where I found uh, my Christian identity. Mm-hmm. I began in another part of the world, and of course, uh, as as I have progressed through the last 30 years here and it's been a, an emissary everywhere else in the world, uh, everywhere else in the world, I, you know, in spite of the fact that all the news portrays to us is what America has done bad, I think when you take the, the progressive and the, the ideological decline in some of our cultural basics that stemmed from religion and we export those, mm-hmm. then yeah, technically what we have done is we have exported a lot of American bad habits that are not truly American. Mm-hmm. But then till you go in and see the hospitals they built and the schools they have run and all the things that, and the technology that was at the forefront, you come back to the fact that, you know, a nation with a Judeo-Christian identity that was given the mind of Christ is probably the reason this youngest of all civilizations has produced some of the greatest technological changes that the world has ever seen. <laughs> How in the world do you think that um, by by coming together like we did 220-some-odd, almost 230 years ago, uh, we got to that point, and then we got here? What happened, Chris? Because we, we, we touched on this the last time we were together. You know, I had grandfathers, World War II vets, uh, came up after the Vietnam War, but had those men yeah. in my lives as well. And I'm looking around, and it, it just – it's not – I don't recognize – 
to a great extent, the country that I remember growing up in 35 years ago. Yeah, because uh, I think we have uh, diminished what the definition of legend is. We have minimized what a hero does. And as a result, our adoration points are very low. Uh, if someone gets uh, more likes at the end of the day and more follows at the end of the day, they may, in this digital world, get hero status instantly. <laughs> and uh, I think what happens is, you know, growing up, kids wanted to be astronauts and kids wanted to be different things. And uh, ambition was not put in terms of greed, but in terms of respect. And I was sharing this with someone earlier. I said, we talk about millennials and we talk about a world that is forgetting very quickly what the essence of being America or American is. And I think the reason for that is in the rest of the world, they are millennials too, but they have not been allowed to sacrifice on culture, compromise on loyalty, or negotiate on respect. <laughs> now, now that's, that was a mouthful, but that, that's a head full <laughs> of knowledge right there because having – Young, I have young children. Uh, I guess they'll grow into millennials. We'll call them something different yeah. by then. But um, I, I see that. Or I see that, and I've been trying to put my finger on what what's changed. And you nailed it. I mean, I remember wanting to be a patriotic citizen of my country. It had nothing mm -hmm. to do with color. It had nothing to do with social status. It was here. I am. We are free. Let us be a beacon of light to the rest of the world. You know, in high school, I couldn't. I could not wait to turn eighteen so I could go sign my selective services card. I remember these days uh, going to the voters' registration office and and uh, doing what I had to do there so I could vote in the presidential election. I was excited because I felt a sense of duty to complete those things because of the men and women who had gone before me. But I don't get that vibe anymore, and I think that you just told me why. Yeah, and if you go back in American history, and I think David Barton and his son did a small YouTube clip, and it's probably something worthy that people should go and watch. But when he talked about the whole immigration of the early days of people wanting to come to this country, now you have to realize in my book, The American Dream, which I'm doing a rewrite on right now, I actually wrote it this way. I said, we're, too, we're not poor. We're too cheap to afford that once available commodity of dignity. <laughs> and I said, as a result, for me, America was not a geographical oddity or a destination. American exceptionalism was an ideal. So when people came here, our fundamental rights guaranteed us the right to freedom of worship. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were Christian in their identity. Uh, Thomas Jefferson they claim was a deist, and uh, he, you know, he actually wrote the Jefferson Bible, the moral teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, where he he dis he declined to accept the miraculous, but he was very forthcoming that the moral was worthy of a nation. And this is the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, endowed by a Creator God with truths that are self-evident. So, being an American was an internal ideal, according to David Barton in some of the early writings I've read. It was not something that you you wore on your you wore on the inside, and as a result of that, you saw seventeen year old and eighteen year old people who were told when they had to storm the beaches of Normandy that look to your left, look to your right, two of you may not be coming back. Mm. <laughs> that was so. Uh... It's an internal thing, and what I'm I mean, Mr. Ziegler gave me that, and so. 
the the analogy he said, he says, if you want exceptionalism in this country, you have to understand the civility with which it was built. And that's interesting because civility only comes from a moral code. And that moral code came from a moral lawgiver. So, I mean, to quote Benjamin Franklin, when they were having this rat trying to ratify the Constitution in 1787, I think it was about a couple of years later, uh, in his 81st year, the man who had signed both the Declaration of Independence and now getting ready to sign the Constitution says this, and I quote, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Mm. I would encourage the listeners to read that book, Four Great Americans, by James Baldwin, where the life of uh, Benjamin Franklin is chronicled, Abraham Lincoln is chronicled, George Washington is chronicled, and believe it or not, uh, Daniel Webster. But uh, these are, you know, they are abridged uh, biographies of these great men. Now, Benjamin Franklin, by his own admission, uh, was not probably the most devout of Christians, but he had uh, probably, if I was him, I would be his way too, because the man was the most well-read person in the colony, so I'm pretty sure there was no preacher worth his salt who could have kept up with the intellect of Benjamin Franklin in a pew. Yet in his biography, his letters to his son, he says something to the effect of, uh, uh, today we receive the first fruits of our work for his printing press. I don't think a lot of unbelievers use the word first fruit. <laughs> <laughs> America is, and that's one of the ways that we describe it. Uh, I personally like the old, uh, the old way, these United States. It seems mm-hmm. to be that these United States aren't as united as they were. Can we contribute some of that uh, disarray from in amidst uh, the peoples and the different people groups in the U.S., do you think we can contribute some of that, any of that, to the fact that we have generally as society decided to follow other things than Christ and what the principles that were laid out by our founders together? Uh, to some degree, uh, I think our founders gave us that freedom. They said that, you know, Congress shall make no law enforcing, when I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, they also... Uh, gave us the freedom to worship. So I think people talking about the separation of church and state to a large degree, those that are angry with it, for it, or against it, I don't get involved in that diatribe. But I'm very clear in one of the words. I mean, I think it was separation of, not separation from. Uh, I don't think, uh, regardless of what we want to do in the civic affairs of men and let other people believe the way they want to, uh, 99% of the people in this world have some kind of a belief system. Some subscribe to a different worldview than mine. Some subscribe to uh, a worldview where there is no God. But 99% have something that guides them. Pandering to the 1% is just bad marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think to that degree, that's what we have done. Uh, as a result, to be inclusive, what we have done is we said our desire to be inclusive means we're going to reject the exclusivists. <laughs> mm, I got you. And uh, the only exclusivists that are rejected happen to be the Judeo-Christian exclusivists because every other worldview for some reason seems to get a pass. Now, I have friends from all faiths, and that's the beauty of what I do. I tell people somehow using just common civility, which is the basic core of our foundation of our, of our republic, uh, I have managed to straddle that line between secular and sacred without irritating either, but both sides know what I believe. 
And I think unless we go back to the basics of those that see us know what guides us, Dr. Martin Luther King said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And if you want to stand direct, don't bend over so people can climb on your back. Mm. So um, uh, these, these visuals, you know, our modern day Christians need to practice the old fashioned Christ centered servant leadership. Uh, this is what was uh, very paramount in the early foundation of this nation when I think it was Isaac Potts or someone who said that he heard a rustle in the bushes and he saw George Washington on the other side knelt in prayer. And this was a man who was, I think, on the opposite side of the army of George Washington. But he says the kind of prayer he prayed to God seemed to come from this firm foundation in which he believed. And I was convinced as I was watching there that if there was a God, that's the kind of prayer he would hear. Wow. <laughs> And uh, these, I mean, you know, when I read these stories, I'm just surprised more of it is not taught. Now, I understand that there is bad in American history. And, uh, you know, Mr. Ziegler himself would tell me he was raised in Mississippi. But his mother said, we are going to stand in front of a colorblind God. Mm -hmm. So even though he came from a state that was noted for some of its uh, prejudicial tendencies, Mr. Ziegler's daughter-in-law is from Mexico, his uh, his uh, director of international operations was from India. So this man said, my mother had a sixth grade education, but she taught me about being to serving a colorblind God. But then to abdicate him from being a patriot, he told me God first, family second, and country third. And the reason he gave was this, have a God to look up to, have a family to lean on, and have a country to stand on, and you will be off to the races. Wow. That's some good word there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what... Uh, what are you, where are you where are you going? You've mentioned, I think, maybe in just private conversation, that it's your desire to take some of these these truths and share them with the youth, the millennials. We mentioned a few moments ago. Sure. We've talked about the millennials here on the program. We've even had Jared, who calls himself a millennial, on here before. But yeah. we, we want to serve people from from every age and every walk, and especially the men who were looking to be who God created them to be. Uh, but we know that it takes a certain amount of freedom to, to be able to stand and to be that man. So how sure. do you how do you encourage uh, the younger people to to begin to find this place of understanding regarding how they enjoy the freedoms that they have? And part of it stems back to I think it was the stress specialist Hans Selye who said gratitude is the healthiest of all human emotions, and then someone I think correlated to that saying anger probably the most destructive. Mm-hmm. If you wake up miserable that someone else has either stolen the pie or uh, has given you a smaller piece of the pie, which means if you wake up with envy in your heart or some kind of ingratitude for your own position, you're going to be fighting a race that is going to stem and you're going to look at a world through the lens of that bitterness. So when you look at the word gratitude is the healthiest of all human emotions, the lowest common denominator in America was always, what are you grateful for? Mm-hmm. So when you, look at, uh, when you look at some of how the founding came about or when you look at uh, uh, the conversation, I think it was uh, David Hackett Fisher or someone, a historian, was interviewing a gentleman at one time uh, at Harvard, and he asked him the question. He says, what caused you guys to fight? Was it, uh, was it the writings of Locke and Harrington that caused you to fight? Uh, this was, he was interviewing the last surviving member of the Revolutionary War at that time. And he said, what caused you to fight? I mean, you know, you're going up with the mighty imperial army of Britain, and uh, you guys, uh, you know, 
bunch of ragtag militia men <laughs> with no formal training. What caused you to fight? Was it the writings? I mean, was it the writings of all these guys that inspired you? He said, no. He said, was it the Stamp Act? He says, no, it didn't affect us. He says, was it the tea? He says, no, our boys had already dumped it into the har harbor uh, before we got there. Then he says, uh, pray tell, what caused you to fight? He says, and I love his words. He says, uh, we had been free always and always intended to be free. <laughs> <laughs> it was so a protection cause, of what they had. Yeah, if your cause celeb is simple, your steps will be simple. So today, in fact, I was writing an article for LinkedIn later on, but I, the article was titled, where do, you, where do Your Steps as a Man Take You? And uh, so as I wrote, you know, I talked about that we have all these devices on our, on our wrists that calculate. I said, we record everything from the steps we take, the calories we intake, and the beating heart and its pulse rate. In all this hustle, we rarely stop to ask if we are measuring just activity or are we failing in our ability to measure accomplishment. Almost every day I see at least one post on social media with a screenshot of someone who exceeded their desired goal for the number of steps. <laughs> the actual results are we never really got anywhere because when we took the screenshot, we're usually back where we started ready to post something to the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, so are we focusing uh, on the wrong thing? Yeah, we're focusing on steps instead of stride. Mm. We're focusing on distance instead of vision. And everything is momentary and time-lapse, which means I tell people, as great as America is, it's too young to have problems. Most of our antiques are plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I can vouch for that. Yet, yeah, yet, I mean, you know, this is like the Dallas Cowboys. The people say that, you know, I'm ambivalent to the Cowboys. Well, you lie about other things, too. You either love them or hate them. <laughs> so it's America is the same way. You can't not have an opinion about her. It's like, you know, it's the shining city on the hill. Right. But when Ronald Reagan gave the speech about the shining city on the hill, he was the president when I came to this country. Oil was trading at $9 a barrel. Real estate was hard. I had a minimum wage job, but I had a president who had that vision. Arnold Schwarzenegger said it was that speech that changed his mind of what he wanted to be, because the other side's arguments were all like what he had heard in his native Austria. Oh, my goodness. And so it's fascinating. For a guy who had to hear through an interpreter some of the early speeches of Ronald Reagan, he began to understand fundamental and foundational beliefs. And that's why John Adams said, you know, our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And I really do believe that regardless of whether you want to attribute that history to a pure Judeo-Christian ethic, or you want to say out of the 56 people who signed the Declaration, 49 had a church affiliation, but the denominations were different. You know, you can parse it any way you want. Mm -hmm. Bottom line is they had a belief in something greater than them, something more altruistic than them, that made them want to fight to preserve it. But when you read the New England Primer, which is now produced by wall builders by that aforementioned David Barton, um, in the New England Primer, in the first grade, people were asked to memorize, you know, polysyllabic words like abomination and desolation and memorize entire hymns and poems by, uh, and no wonder this nation produced mm. people of that ilk. Because if you're memorizing, you know, our father's God from out, you know, out whose hand the centuries flow or, you know, how great is our heavenly king who reigns above the sky. How shall a child presume to sing his dreadful majesty? How great his power is none can tell, nor think how large is grace, nor men before, nor saints that kneel or dwell before us. You know, when you memorize that in the first grade, what kind of a self-image are you going to have? Right, right.
We don't get that anymore. We don't get as that you as, can say. I probably get excited about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that's 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 all been removed from the educational institution, and and in large part, a lot of that's been removed from the church itself. And and uh, Kale, you have just touched on the one nerve that a lot of evangelicals and uh, and progressive Christians do not want to touch. That we have been guilty of it to a larger degree than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like Rome, you know, in 1930s, a man wrote that book, Sex and the Culture, and he said, every great superpower that will, that will uh, change and redefine morality within four generations will cease to be a superpower. Wow. And this was written by uh, J.D. Unwin in the 30s. And we are there. We are at that point where even the church is redefining morality. And as a result, we are seeing the decline from within. See, Rome was never conquered. It collapsed from within. It was one of those great superpowers that turned on itself, its own debauchery. It fed on its own erotomania. And when you read Muggeridge and all these people, they will tell you why our civilization in the United States, uh, Dr. Ravi Zacharias wrote a book called Deliver Us From Evil, and he, he articulates in that that he says, post-Vietnam, America's cultural soul came home in a body bag. Mm this love movement and all of that that has now come to roost, we have basically embraced that and said that if we, are not, if we don't embrace those people, uh, we're, turning, we're turning them away. You know, the whole concept of they always use the what would Jesus do. I said, basically, Jesus won't be having these conversations. <laughs> He's the gold standard and how blasphemous for us to believe. Uh, and so I think to a large degree, we may have been we may have lowered our own boundary, as Chesterton said, you know, be careful of which fence you drop if you never asked yourself why it was up there. Mm. Uh, the Bible is the authoritative word of God has given us some edicts, and I think sometimes we misinterpret them or we try to interpret them in, in ways that would be tolerant, which is fine. That is the great commandment we're supposed to love. But unless the Great Commission follows right along, you're just a guy talking about love. <laughs> right. Here's the thing. We, we've got folks that believe the world, the nation's going to collapse in 15 years or less. We have, yeah. other, we have others on Facebook or uh, t- uh, Twitter or whatnot proclaiming that it, uh, three months from now on the 25th or whatever, that's the last day yeah. of, salva- you know, of civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear all these different dates and times, and, and if we study biblical prophecy, we understand that we are close to the imminent sure. return of Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't see potentially see uh, the U.S. mentioned in in the book of Revelation, even in Daniel. If you want to go there, yeah. we don't have to. But um, I hear so much and so much fear from friends of mine, from mm-hmm. uh, my my own brother, and I have mm-hmm. to, you know, I, I look at things too, and I'm like, wow, why did I have five kids for this? <laughs> and I, I know why, and, and I'm not I'm not challenging myself there, but. You know, sure. I just have to wonder, Chris, is what can we do to go – and this is the question of the century, is it not? What can we do to get back to what we had before we lose everything that we haven't even gotten to yet? Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, one wise man said the media has accurately predicted 28 of the last two recessions. <laughs> and I've seen some some well-meaning prophets from Nostradamus onwards – 
predicting. So right now, if I listen to every prediction, including the guys who are waiting for the Hale-Bob Comet right here in Garland, Texas, we may be waiting on the 28th coming based on actual <laughs> dates. But uh, I was just, interesting you bring this up. I just heard Pastor Jack Graham on with Eric Metaxas talking about this, and he actually made a statement which, which stunned me till he backed it up. He says, this is the best time to be a Christian because we are living in a world of that increased antagonism towards the Christ who promised us that this would happen. But Jack Graham said this, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, we as believers cannot live in a doomsday scenario, Mm -hmm. get in a holy huddle, wear our ascension robes, and wait for the second coming. We are to be the salt and light now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What what does he say? Occupy till I come, and he doesn't mean just occupying pews. Right, pretty much. And so that I love that, you know, get, it's very easy to get in the holy huddle, which mm-hmm. we do yesterday with the Sunday school class, and we talk about that. Is there any hope? Well, the hope comes from within. And uh, Alfred Adler, the, the psychologist, said hope is the foundational quality of all change. But John Maxwell said if there's hope in the future, there's power in the present. And for a Christian, what greater hope that regardless of how it happens, whether the sky falls or whether America is part of that battle in Megiddo or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, our greatest hope is that when it happens, we will see him face to face and uh, we will be redeemed. So till that touch, still such time, uh, I love what Adrian Rogers said. We need to live with the urgency as if Christ died yesterday, rose this morning and is coming back this evening. <laughs> <laughs> that would change a lot of people's perspectives, would it not? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ravi puts it this way. He says, when the captain comes on the plane and says, we're going to have mild turbulence, the rest of the passengers hear that message as, that's a euphemism for if you don't have faith, get some now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, everybody, everybody is everybody's thinking about it. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to act sophisticated that they don't need it. Mm-hmm. But this goes back to Aristotelian and Socratic time. And he says, you know, most people live lives of quiet desperation. And what happens is, they are one bad news away from total, totally mailing it in. And who else to, that's why it's called, you know, the good news. Mm-hmm. Um, but as John Lennox says, the good news is only good news if people think their lives are bad. And uh, we, and that's why yesterday I think I was hearing, and I, I think it was Ravi who said this, he says, Jesus Christ did not come to this world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Yeah. Uh, you know, the bad people good is where people turn away from Christianity because they think we have read, we have defined what bad is. And in their mind, our bad is such that they don't qualify anymore because their bad has crossed their boundary. But uh, when he stood, when he was on the cross and he said it is finished, what he basically said is from here onwards, there's nothing you can do that is good enough that's going to get you. And there's nothing you do and do bad enough to keep you out. Come just as you are. And that's why of all the worldviews out there, this is the only one that makes sense where God enters his own creation. And I think within the confines of America, we have lost some of that uh, preaching that Jonathan Edwards asked during that second or the first great revival when people said, uh, when he preached about hell, people clung to the pillars because they didn't <laughs> want to be swept into the hell he was talking about. And that has directly affected where we are today with our lack of love of country, our lack of understanding, a lack of teaching in the institution, and we're pretty much a mess. And I agree, this is a very um, 
a very great time, an excitable time to be a believer, knowing that the, the harvest is so ripe. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll need to continue in our freedoms as best we can to be able to share in that harvest. Um, sure. And so, so we have we have a, a whole generation or two of people coming up behind us, behind you, behind me, that don't understand that. And and what in the world can we do to help them kind of begin to grasp the reality of this country, these teachings, and how they have they were meld together to create um, an experiment that, like you said, their antiques are plastic, but has impacted the world in such a positive way. How do we help them? How do we help them get a hold of that? I mean, it's, uh, you know, and I think we have to go back and teach them basic history, basic civics. I understand that when people look through the lens of American history, uh, if they see a textbook on World War II, it, the interpretation by one teacher might be, well, you know, uh, America interned the Japanese in camps in California and elsewhere, and these people were Americans. Look what it did to its own people. And then you can look on the other side and look at if America hadn't entered and those boys had not lost their lives, uh, would all of Europe be what all of Europe is now? When when all of Europe now looks with that you know strange eye towards America, <laughs> I almost wonder which language they would be speaking if our boys didn't give their lives. So every every story has two sides, and unfortunately, what we have is within the confines of our educational institutions, we are giving a platform to only one side. So there's a large populace of youth who are growing up believing what they are hearing. Not because they are jaded or they don't like this country or anything else, but look at where it's coming from. It's coming from a position of authority and sophistication. So the first thing that evangelicals in this country need to do is to be able to give a solid defense to the faith they have, not just be emotional about the fact that they worship on Sunday. They need to be effective about what they have heard on Sunday all week long. And then try to connect the dots for themselves. This country was founded because people came here for the freedom. And one of my mentors used to say, you know, whether you came, when you, whether your ancestors came on the, in, on the Mayflower and landed at Plymouth Rock, or whether they came in a Plymouth to, May, to work in Little Rock at Mayflower, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> what matters is this is a very unique place in all of human history. And I'm telling you this, I've traveled much of the free world, and uh, nothing excites me more than going into the heartland of America. And I think to a large degree, what we have is we have also become a populist culture. So our, our children are basically attracted to the modernity, the quickness, the glibness, the sophistication of all the schools on the very east, which will be the Ivy League all of the sophistication and the drama that comes from the arts and the theater in either Broadway or in California. And as a result, our children are getting their entire worldview shaped by some very, very narrow apertures. But till, you know, and if you look at the church, the mega church gets all the, all the visibility, but also gets all the blame. Uh, but 95% of the churches in this country, I think, are less than 300 people. Hmm. <laughs> It's a lot of sheep. So I, yeah, so what happens is we are, uh, yeah, a lot of sheep. And I, I, my, my heart is all, when I get invited to speak in schools, and by, by God's grace, I still get that, 
a lot of the teachers know. I mean, you get on YouTube, you see my opinion. I'm not hiding from what I believe in, so there's no camouflage there. But when you teach ethics and morality through logic, when you teach history not through the lens of prejudice but through the lens of pragmatism, when I explain to them that sovereignty is not a sin, that borders are not bigoted, that principles are not always prejudiced, suddenly their eyes open because it's a, it's a different thought process. Now, my son is a product of the public school, so you can't tell me that I put my son in some private school and I'm some, you know, cushy guy who's got my own little, my son's not a trust fund baby. <laughs> and I told my son, trust me, there's no fun. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> they begin to suddenly realize that I'm a first generation immigrant who came here. And if I could understand these things, and that's my biggest, my biggest plea is before you make a radical decision, make sure that it's an informed one by studying both sides. Uh, and evangelicals need to do this too. Study other worldviews and you will realize that your God's word is the true one because it will not come back void. Uh, when you study what they stood for and all of that, you'll begin to understand that this is the only, this is the only belief system that passes the test by the same way. The freedom test is only passed by America because never before in the history of man had it ever been done that a group of people came together and articulated for themselves what self-governance would look like coming straight out of being uh, a colony of a monarchy. So do you, as you go to these schools, as you talk to these, these students and you're spending time with, with folks all over the country, all over the world, uh, do you see glimmers of hope? Is it, um, is, is it a pipe dream or, or, is there fruit to be harvested there from uh, from our time that, that we've already gone ahead? Are we planting enough seed to get a return, or we still have a long way to go? Uh, I think we have a long way to go, but to answer your first question, my, my fight is just that when I look at my son and look at his eyes, he was raised in this country because I chose it for him. He was born here, raised here. He's enjoying the American dream because we gave him that privilege. But I don't want my son to ever say if his generation faces a fight or faces a peril or America is not the America that I gave him. I don't want my son to ever say, hey, my dad was part of the problem. I only want my son to say my dad went down fighting. Mm. And so I have a very and I think if every father did that for their children, we'll at least have a force to be reckoned with. No, there are enough pockets of influence and enough pockets of hope out there. And I see that. But we're getting overwhelmed every day. We're trying to provide kitchen table solutions while most of the world is giving them philosophical ideologies. And then when they listen to the media and the narrative there, they're getting bombarded nine times to one by what we can give them. So we're right now being our, our, our ammunition uh, is not enough in this fight. And the reason I say that, and I say it in the ammunition of words and the ammunition of ideas, is because... I think well-meaning uh, people who are patriotic at heart, who are moral in their, in their being, who are just in their behavior, who are running their small homes, they don't want to rock the boat. And I don't want to rock the boat either. You don't, you know, but what they're saying is, you know, I can't fight it, so I'm going to retreat to suburbia, raise my fences, and raise my children. Mm. And as a result, what we are doing as a disservice to our kids is we are sending them out into a world where they're leaving a home with mixed ideas because we were never designed for isolation. We were designed for community. 
And uh, as a result of that, these kids are fighting a battle because at home they're getting the good knowledge and education, but on the playground they're confronting all these other ideas. So we can't have 900 different definitions of morality. Right has to be right, wrong has to be wrong, and that has to be across the board. Uh, and then we can fight a bigger fight. But um, I think what's happening is society is not being defined by character, it's being defined by behavior. And as a result, uh, we have replaced morality, which guides character, and replaced it with justice, which kind of protects behavior. As a dad, you, you've got a son finished school. I've got just teenagers. My, my eldest is just now a teenager. Mm-hmm. And and my greatest desire for them is to, to be a follower and a disciple of Christ, of course. That is number one. But I want them to understand and appreciate the country that they live in. That They haven't had the opportunity to see other countries and to see how people live who don't have the freedoms that we enjoy here. Uh, they, they've seen the picture of the Korea Peninsula where mm-hmm. at night where the south is lit up and the, the, the north is dark. And, and you, you know, you try to explain that. And help mm-hmm. them understand the difference in uh, philosophy of government, philosophy of rule, and and how uh, you know there there is a shift, there is a change, and you want them to understand that. My grandfathers are gone; they can't explain, they can't share with them what you know gave them the the wherewithal to say, "I'm really 17. I want to join the Navy when he's 16." You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. that was my grandfather. Yeah. You know, how in the right, world? Right. You know, and so they're they're gone. I, I can't share the I can share the stories, but the men aren't there. How mm-hmm. how can we, and, and what do we share with our children now to give them the opportunity not to be held in a bubble and protected until they're eighteen and then just throw them to the wolves? But how can we help them and enable them, empower them, to be able to grow into that understanding of where they are, the blessing of what they've been given, and how to protect that, and why that's worth protecting. Because I, I see that kids you know, appreciate the fact that they can have cell phones and drive cars, go to the movies on the weekend, hang out with their buddies or whatever. But if it came down to, we're going to take this away from you, I, I don't see a whole lot of that's worth holding on to. I would be willing to fight for that kind of thing from the children of today, and, 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 and honestly, a lot of adults that I'm around as well. And I think uh, there, are two, there are two levels to that answer. One of the things I did with my son wherever I could is I made sure that even in my absence when I traveled or whatever, I made sure that there were good godly men in his life who, uh, who could take him to play tennis if uh, that's what the school required, but I was not there as a father. I didn't want the absentee father syndrome to affect my son having good Christian men in his life. So my friend Sonny would come and take Nicholas for ice cream. I trusted these guys with my life because they have been my accountability partners uh, for, you know, uh, for over 20 years. So through this process, that was one thing I did. I always made sure that my son saw other good Christian men raising their own families and that his father was not uh, that... I was not the exception, I was the norm in the world, which is technically true. Um, More people believe X than Y, but Y is what's portrayed because, uh, you know, one theologian put it this way, even if Jesus Christ himself came again and said, listen, I made a mistake, there's just not one way to God, there are a thousand ways to God, 
man in his infinite wisdom would want a thousand and one just to have an out. <laughs> so, so, so some of the non-negotiables uh, are good Christian men. Second is made sure that my son uh, got a chance either by, by design or by accident to hear the words and voice of profound men. So I played Zig Ziglar in the background for my son when we were driving when he was very young. So by osmosis and by just passive learning. Mm-hmm. And actually there is a study which was quoted that I think it was the University of Southern California that said that if you're in your car 12,000 miles a year is what you're driving in terms of distance, that within the spans of three years you could get the equivalent of two years of college as a passive listener, listening to good information like podcasts that you do, etc., And I found that fascinating. They call that automobile university. So I made sure that when my son was in the car, the only thing that would be played would be podcasts or sermons of the likes of Adrian Rogers or uh, Ravi Zacharias or some of those things. Mm -hmm. So he heard a consistent message that was similar to his father, but articulated differently with a different vocabulary. Uh, And we saw his mom did the same thing with women teachers and so on. Then one of the things, scale I'll give you that will really help every man who's listening to this is this thing called an affirmation. Uh, I heard this from Bill Glass many, many years ago when I heard when I went to one of his events. Bill Glass, of course, did prison crusades for years and years with Champions for Life. He was an all-pro for the Cleveland Browns, trapping guy. And he had two boys who were fairly grown. But he says, you know, in his work in the American prisons, he saw that over 90% of the people in American prisons were men and 100% of them hated their father. Hmm. So he went down and did some statistical research and found out that parents of Jewish kids did something with their kids that made sure that their kids never got in trouble. And as a result, it reflected that in the American penal system, the people of Jewish origin were so minuscule, it was not even counted as a category. (laughs) And uh, what did the Jewish father do and has done since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God bless you, my son. I love you, my son. And then a hug or a kiss. So first, there was a blessing. Second, there was an acknowledgement. And third, there was a physical embrace. So from that day, and he says he had started having an affirmation with his son, which was simply, you're mine and I love you. You're terrific and I'm proud of you. And I would text, I would write that, say that to my boy every night. And I have friends who do it to all their kids every night. And then my son would uh, say it back to me. And then as he got older, he would text it to me or email it to me. The affirmation between father and son was that. And one day I remember my son telling my wife, he says, Mama, maybe you and I need to have a separate affirmation too. So I'll know that I'm in both your hearts all the time. Uh, And then I would have, there was another thing called Little Boy's Dad, which is a poem I would send out to men who were hurting. Uh, You know, I may never gather silver or gold and I may ever, you know, my... Colleagues may consider me a failure when my business life is told, but if you can grow up godly, my boy, I'll be glad, for I know I'll have been successful as your dad. Hmm. Uh, And these are things that were vital in conversation, because I was an absentee father in the fact that I was gone a third or half of the year. And so those were vital in raising the children. My son never doubted for a fact that I was a patriot. I always made sure that we got into an argument one time when we were someplace, and uh, I told him to take his cap off when the national anthem was being sung, and uh, he didn't. And then I, I slapped it off of his head. Uh, it didn't hit his head. The cap fell off. But at that point, he was profoundly embarrassed because we were all standing, and I could see the sniffle building up in his eyes. 
uh, and his nose as he realized that I had, you know, I was, you know, I just, I just thought that that was disrespectful. And as his father, I just needed to take that hat off of his head. Um, and he didn't know where to go. And then I remembered James Dobson's words on Dare to Discipline. When your child is acting up, hold him tighter. So I just embraced him while the national anthem was being sung. When he came back, he said, it's no big deal. I said, it's no big deal for a lot of the people. He says, many people were wearing their caps. I said, yeah, but they're, I said, you're my boy. <laughs> <laughs> and so that per, whenever we correct them, whenever we point them, we need to embrace them and say, you know, this is what Mr. Ziegler would always tell me, he, what his mother said. He says, uh, you know, for other people, it would be okay, but my boy can do better. <laughs> I like that. And, yeah, and so that pride, uh, has it's not haughty or arrogance. It comes from a deep blessing. Uh, and my son knew for a fact that his father and mother would always be together and bless him. And that way, you know, the home may not be, may physically look different when we came back if there was a change, but the home would always emotionally be stable. And a lot of our children out there begin with the with the fear that their home is not going to be emotionally stable. So why talk about a country when they can't even, when the home itself is a wreck? Right, right. <laughs> and and that's that's a huge problem. And even the respect thing, you know, a lot of kids don't understand respect for their parents. How can they respect a country? How can they respect a lifestyle, a, a, a creator God that they've never seen before? And yeah. it, does it does it not all come back to you and I, Krish? Is it not all laid back at our feet as men to bring up the the generations behind us in the fear and admonition of the Lord and everything that follows that? Yeah, and it needs to be a continuity. And the best image I was ever given on this was a fact of a father comes home one evening and there are two boys in the house. And the first one runs up to the father and hugs him. And the other boy is behind the father waiting for his turn. So the father's face is faced away, but the son who is he's holding is now looking at the second son who's behind the father. But the father can see his reflection in the mirror. And the first son who he's hugging mocks the second son saying, I got your first kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the father then says, um, don't hold the father while mocking his son. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the image of Christ I see. You know, sometimes what we do is uh, we, we accept God the father and we kind of are okay with God the son. But we do not rely on the spirit which the son promised us as what will be left till he comes again. Right. And I think unless we go back to that holy craving of God, uh, wanting a double portion of his, I, I think revival will, you know, Adrian Rogers would say, and I quote him a lot because I love, he, I love his sound bites. He would say, we're raising a generation based on rights and all we're seeing is revolution. We need to raise a generation based on responsibility and maybe we'll see revival. Wow. That That is a definitive need in this country, not just... Uh, in this patriotism vein that we've discussed here, but also in the church. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, in our homes, we need to see revival. And, um, I, you know, I've I've read uh, books on the, the Jewish blessing, going back to that for just a moment, and the power mm -hmm. that's, that's there. I, I watched a, uh, I can't remember the name of it, it was a short documentary about the children who escaped um, Germany, I'm, I'm sorry, they, it was the Jewish children who es escaped Germany before 
the uh, the SS came in and began the mm-hmm. encampment. And one Jewish man, he was probably 70-plus years old. It was an older documentary. This was a, an elder sure. gentleman. And he said that his father took him to the train station, and, and they had the paperwork processed. And th- it was time for them to go, and the guard was calling to get on the train and whatnot. And he said, my father grabbed me, and he blessed me and kissed me. And that was the last I ever saw of him. But the man, the the elder the man here in the documentary could hardly speak those words. He said, I'm so sorry. It still touches me today. And mm. his father left him with that. And, and this mm. man, you could tell he was, he was not a, a pauper by any stretch. He yeah. had been able to go forward, but he, he was saying it was those words from his father that gave him the ability to, to face the next day without him. And I, I think that, at least in what I see around me, there's so many men who spend so much time working to provide for their families financially and food and groceries and whatnot. Uh, they may forget or not even have time to think about speaking those words of love and trust into their children uh, when that's really what they need the most. And uh, interesting you bring up that thing because that image took me back to when I left India in 1986. My father, by no stretch of the imagination, is a believer. He's not a Christian. Uh, you know, uh, he sits when I speak and we have conversations about religion. My father is by no means just a typical Indian man. He got his Ph.D. when he was 83, so he's very educated. His Ph.D. was on, you know, the hermeneutics of human values. So his defense was on someone I disagree with and all of this stuff. But, you know, I told my dad early on it was because of the way he raised me that I felt that love would win despite our differences mm-hmm. to speak. But I remember that image in 1986 as I was leaving to come away to America. I was a younger one. And uh, we were in this old, uh, this airport used to be shared with, uh, it's still shared with, I think they call it an aerodrome, which means it's shared with the defense uh, field across. So you cross this one place where they had this barbed wire and then you walked across the tarmac to get to the plane because the plane would only land on the defense side. They've changed that now. But in the old days, the barbed wire was as far as the people could come. Mm. Only passengers could go beyond the barbed wire, just like you see in the days of old. And through that barbed wire, my father grasped my fingers because I was the younger of the two. And my older brother had already left and joined the Merchant Marines. So my father held my hand and he says, you're the youngest. You're going forward. Just remember one thing. He said, for every step you take forward, I'll take one right behind you. God forbid you ever fail. I'll be right there to catch you. Don't be afraid to succeed. Mm. And I, I left with that image that my father was always behind me. When I became a Christian, there was a bitterness that ensued. My father said I'd become a curse on the family. And I told my father, I remembered his own words. I said, you're always going to be there to catch me. So, Pop, I'm going to outlove you. <laughs> <laughs> and I used his words. And then, you know, so it took five years, but he accommodated that. Well, 1999, my father met Mr. Ziegler for the first time at the Ziegler home. And uh, that was the changing point in the relationship that I had with both men, my spiritual father and my biological father. Because my father said, you know, our only goal was that you would fall in fertile soil. And we were fearful that America would corrupt you, the West would rob you, and we would miss you. Uh, So we only wanted you to fall in fertile soil and become something great. He says, but today I met a gardener. (laughs) Wow. Meaning Zig Ziglar. And he said, son, whatever you do in this life, be a good gardener. So I think what our nation desperately needs, Gail... Uh, is this. We need, uh, you know, we talk about fishers of men, we talk about ministries, we talk about redemption ministries, we talk about rehabilitation ministries, 
But what we need to do is make sure that if we want America to really reclaim her Judeo-Christian identity and allow people to become patriots without this whole nationalism debate, uh, we need to believe that the, uh, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment are two rails. If each of us balances on just one of that, saying, I'm just going to love, we'll walk a few paces, or I'm just going to witness, we'll walk a few paces. But if we vote witness and love, and those are the two rails, and figuratively we've got one leg on each one, we can walk a little longer. Mm. And I think what we need is, uh, we need we need a little, one pastor was telling me, he says, I said, why do you preach topically? <laughs> Uh, and he says, well, you know, my job is to fill the pews. I said, no, your job is to fill the pulpit. Uh, he says, uh, well, I don't feel like meddling. I said, if you're not meddling, you're not preaching. They can read a book report. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, what are we doing on Sunday if that hour is just going to be? And that's why, you know, the the notion given by theologians is the biblical order of worship itself. Sometimes I think within our churches, we're getting wrong. If you look at the Genesis account, first the people had to be redeemed. And America has come to that reckoning. We need to redeem her. Uh, and then we have to give them the new rules of righteousness. Because only after the redemption of 40 years, a journey that should have taken maybe two months, 150 miles, it took 40 years. Uh, <laughs> righteousness was only given to Moses after that when he was allowed to go on top of the mountain and come down with the tablets. Once they were redeemed and made righteous, only then were they given the specifications for the tabernacle so they can begin worship. We do it backwards. Right. We first build the worship sanctuary, then tell them, okay, these are our rules of righteousness. Now go get redeemed. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think the basic American identity is the same thing. People think America is a geographical oddity that they can poke fingers at and they can look at it as policy and procedure. Uh, America was, is, and in my heart will always be an ideal. They need to go back and read what Tocqueville wrote when he came and visited America and read some of the history of this nation to realize that uh, a constitutional republic birthed out a prayer, even if you read the Benjamin Franklin story during that time of 87, when they were not coming to a, a, a decision on some of the core issues of their time, he says, go back to your churches and pray. Uh, they were excused. Now, we'll always have the skeptic. We'll always have the, the critic. And this is one of the fundamental things I find the funniest of all. Uh, critics are everywhere. You know, I tell people, if you can't build anything, become a critic, because that's an easy, cushy job. Just tear what else is standing down. But, I, you know, Mr. Ziegler would say, I've traveled most of the free world and I've never yet seen a statue erected to a critic. So I'm in pretty good understanding that they are not held in such high esteem after all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's the worst someone can do? Criticize you? Big whoop. Yeah, yeah. The irony of the 7.2 billion people on planet Earth is 7.1 billion will go to their grave never having been criticized because they didn't do anything. <laughs> So, so where where do we go? What do we do? Uh, what, what what is it? Where do we go from here? I think uh, I think the first step is uh, making sure that our homes uh, are are protected, which means the men have to become men. Uh, we have we need fathers in the house. Uh, it's not a question of who is superior and who is not superior. Uh, a stay-at-home dad like yourself raising the children is as important or even more important 
when my wife was working, she was making more money than me, and I really wanted to stay home because I want I liked my lifestyle. But she says, you know, no, we're going to reverse it, and you're going to go to work. And whichever way it works out is not the question. The question is this: we cannot role identity is paramount. The word that was said somewhere was, anything with two heads is a freak, and anything with no head is dead. <laughs> so we need order amidst this chaos. We need hierarchy. We need discipline. So my wife said, I'm going to be the disciplinarian. You cannot come home with guilt, gifts of guilt and try to spoil him by giving him things just because you're not here. So don't, don't try to. So whichever, whatever the roles are, we need clearly established roles based on the foundational attributes of what we want our family to represent. And then we are able to send them into society with some non-negotiables. Uh, once we begin the home, and I think that's where the education begins. The school influence is a very interesting thing. Years ago, there was a program called I Can, which addressed the three legs of the stool. We did the same thing in the prisons. See, in the prison, the guards and the individuals who are incarcerated, as well as their families, need to be get the same information if we want the rehabilitation to be complete. In schools, the educational superintendent, the school teachers, the parents and the children need to be getting the same information if we want this to take. So we have to start it in small bites. But, uh, you know, when I look at look at what we have allowed in the last 40 years, it is almost fascinating to think what goes away as average now and normal. What it, I mean, it is fascinating to think that we are so far down that line. Yeah. So I, I'm clinging to some of the basics that what, what does, uh, you know, it's very hard to change an ocean liner, and if America is an ocean liner that has gone down a certain distance, but we can we can turn a yacht. And so maybe we just have to have, rather than have one idea that can influence 300 million people, we need to have 200 people with an idea that can influence 10. <laughs> And uh, each person takes on a small cause. My cause is small. A lot of people, you know, I'm only getting. And that's one of the reasons for this. I've been on the road for 25 years overseas. Most of my Christian work was overseas. I'm now having American institutions and organizations saying, hey, you're a first generation migrant. You've enjoyed the American dream. You you seem to understand some of the basic tenets. Um, you You represent both sides of the equation. Technically, you know. Uh, from a from a pigmentation or a color standpoint, I'm brown, so I'd be halfway in between, I guess. Uh, but the the logic of this is basically just that. Uh, it has nothing to do with the way you speak. It has nothing to do with your linguistics. Let's take one problem at a time. I was speaking in a Hispanic community in in Los Angeles, and the lady gave me an issue. She says, I'm a single mother with a child, and I've got a husband who doesn't pay. And then I said, well, let me stop you there. I said, would your problem be worse if you were also someone who was abused and uh, were abandoned and didn't know a lick of English and was on welfare? Hmm. She says, what do you mean? I said, by adding problems, you don't add a solution. I said, let's deal with one at a time. First thing, is there help for a single mother? Yes, find that help. Hmm. Is there help for a child who, doesn't have a, who has an absentee father? Yes, find that help. I said, if you find three different problems and find three different solutions, you're better off than articulating that you got six problems and nowhere to go. <laughs> but but that but that's responsibility. Yeah, that's that's you're, yeah, you you threw responsibility. That's 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 a whole other 
hour and a half worth of podcasting right there, but that's, that's, uh, but yeah, if I, if I'd thrown a bucket of ice water in her face, I couldn't have gotten her attention quicker because the, she says, you're the first person to have shocked me into reality. Yeah, that's it. And it's yeah, not and just, uh, it's just not just Spanish speaking single moms. It's, it's the, the whole group of people, every nationality, color, uh, height or depth there, everyone is pointing fingers at everyone else instead of just taking responsibility for themselves and getting to work. And most people, and this was, a, I think, I don't know who said this, but it said most people with a problem do not want their problem solved. They want to tell three people about it. And if one of them fouls up and solves the problem, they can't tell the fourth. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I do this with the Indian community, too. The Indian community, first-generation migrants will look at me and say that, you know, I really am having a hard time with people struggling to hear what I'm saying. And they constantly question my accent. And I was raised to speak English in India. And I said, yeah, there's a difference between speaking English and speaking an accent in another geog- geographical place. You have to make the adjustment. Mm. And they look at me and say, that's not fair. I said, the irony of ironies is I also grew up in the same country you're talking about, and I also speak, I still have an accent. I've just modified some of the words. But the important thing is when I do my communication classes in Dallas and teach public speaking, 100% of my audience is white. (laughs) (laughs) That is is the irony of ironies. Yeah, so they look at that and I say, I want you to see, I did not just want to be understood I just did not want to be accepted. I wanted to win because that's what America promised me. Mm. They said it was the land of the free and the home of the brave, and anybody who came from anywhere with whatever background could rise. And I was given examples of this, of the lady from Hungary who didn't know how to speak English but became a number one real estate salesperson in Detroit. When asked, she says, everybody sells land. I sell a piece of the greatest part of Earth. Wow. <laughs> uh, and she that's the story it. Ziegler told me, and my life changed. So. Wow. So it does come back to responsibility in the home. It really does. And I, I mean, Kale, I wish we could slice this and find some other magic pill and solve City Hall. But City Hall is where we send people from homes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, you know, uh, and that's why it was said years ago that we will not uh, we will not change this nation in the White House. We will not change it in the state house. We will not change it in the schoolhouse. We will not change it by changing the names on the outhouse. We will only change it in God's house. <laughs> there you go. Chris, it's, it's been a wonderful conversation again and, and so enlightening. It's, it's, it's so cool to, to catch up with you and, and to not just hear your heart, but to feel your heart for so many things, most especially your brothers and sisters here in the U.S. and around the world who are seeking to, to be a different person who, who want that opportunity for growth, not just financially or, or in the business yeah. world, but, but in Christ and giving us examples in real life, uh, conversation about things that have, have, uh, impacted you and, and mm-hmm. how you've, you shouldn't be where you are. I'd say that you shouldn't be where you are. Uh, but it was the promise of a free land and a great mm-hmm. Savior who loves you and still just adores you and your family, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, it's so cool to see how how things have come 
back full circle for you. And it's it's really mm-hmm. to hear how you're you're preparing to go and share. Uh, if somebody's listening and are interested in having you uh, at their venue, their church, their uh, their town, how do they contact you? Uh, the best way to contact me is uh, Heather. She's my executive assistant and brand manager, Heather, H-E-A-T-H-E-R, at Krish Dunham, my name. So it'll appear on the podcast, K-R-I-S-H-D-H-A-N-A-M.com. So Heather at com. she'll be able to... Uh, chat with you and she manages the scheduling and all of the other stuff as well but uh going back to your your word scale um yeah i've i i i speak because i've i've been blessed and uh other people pulled me up with wisdom because they saw something in me and when they were pulling me up i didn't understand it now that a lot of them are gone and moved on and i know they are sitting face to face with jesus uh, every time I stand up and speak, I just hope I'm honoring the I'm honoring the fact that they feel they bet on the right horse, and you know, to that I'm eternally grateful. I can't wait to see them again. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of again, uh, I'm sure, like I just mentioned a moment ago, we could we could go on. It's just sure. so, so great to spend this time with you. We do appreciate you being here with us, and thank you for helping remind us of the realities of this great nation that we have found ourselves living in. And um, we hope that you enjoy the the holiday weekend and are the actually you know we kind of celebrate it. I've got a, my eldest birthday's early in July and then we hit the fourth right after. Oh. It's kind of a week around my house, but uh, it's always a blessed time, and it's a great mm-hmm. reminder to take our hats off when we're supposed to and to remember those whether we agree on one side or the other. Uh, we have all been given an opportunity to be the best we can be here. And, and thank you for being a shining example of that for us, Chris. We really appreciate it. Amen. Thanks a lot for having me on, Cam. Oh, absolutely. Again, a very special thank you to Chris for being with us in this episode of the Modern Christian Men Show. You can find us online at modernchristianmen.com as well as the show notes, links mentioned, the books, the films we spoke about in this this program here. We'll have most of those, if not all of them, listed in our show notes, as well as contact links with Chris if you would like to invite him to your venue. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. Again, thank you for sharing, liking, subscribing, reviewing, all those things that people do for podcasts. It means a lot, and I genuinely appreciate our time together and look forward to seeing you next time here on the show. Thank you for listening to the Modern Christian Men podcast. You can find us online at modernchristianmen.com.